It's funny, I, uh, I forgot that in our makeshift setup that we don't have a way to get sound to the computer that plays this video. <laughs> so it's just a video, no sound today. Church, I'm grateful that we get to worship a God who is like no other, that as we open our Bibles this morning, we are opening the word of the living God. There is nothing like it because there is nothing like our God. So it is valuable for us to be together today to study the word in fellowship with one another as we live in fellowship with our God. Before we get into the text, uh, I just want to bring to your attention that our, our church family uh, suffered a death this week. Um, you may know uh, Alicia and Jeremy Smith, and you may not, and that's fine, but they delivered a, a baby girl this week, and that baby girl did not survive. Um, her name was Addie. So I'd like to take a, pray, take a moment and pray for the Smiths. Um, would, you, would you pray with me as we pray for them together? God, we know that you are the giver of life. We know that every breath we have is a gift from you. And God, it, it feels bad when life is taken, especially a life so young. But, but God, we, we thank you that death was not not your plan. Your plan was for us to be with you in life. And so it's right for death to feel bad. It's death for it to feel wrong. So God, I pray for comfort now in this difficult time. I pray that you would give the Smiths just a comfort that only you can give. I pray that you'd give them peace. God, we thank you for caring for their child. We thank you for caring for Addie even now. God, we ask your blessing on that family. We ask as a church, that you would help us to minister well, that as we ask you to shower your love on them, we recognize that a part of how you do that is by providing your church to your people. So God, help us to minister well. God, we thank you for the life that you do give in, in your son, that there is salvation in Jesus, that there is hope for an eternity with you, with those that we love, that know you. God, we, we thank you that Jesus came and lived a life we couldn't live, that he was perfect in every way, that he died a death that we deserved, and that he rose again, and we take such great hope in the resurrection. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3? Galatians chapter 3. Paul is arguing in Galatians to the Galatians that they have been listening to false teachers, that they've been deceived, so easily deceived. He uses the word bewitched. How have you, who has bewitched you that they are believing lies and deceptions? It's like, how, how is that possible? He's, he's somewhat amazed. He says, I'm surprised at you because Paul had invested time teaching the true gospel to these believers in Galatia. They had had it. They understood faith alone, faith alone in Jesus Christ that he gave his life so that we could be saved. And it's not by our works so that no man can boast, but it is only by Christ that we can be saved. 
And there had come a group into this church that had said, no, you need to follow the laws of Moses. In order to be saved, you've got to do everything written in the law of Moses. And Paul's coming back behind him and saying, no, that's wrong. Jesus fulfilled that law. He fulfilled it. That is not how you are saved. You are saved by trusting in the one who fulfilled the law and gave his life so that we could be saved. So that's where we're picking up in Galatians chapter 3. Look with me in verse 15. This is what God's word says in Galatians 3, 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see in this passage already, in verses 15 through 18, this comparison of a promise and a law. And what we're going to see is that this promise endures, that the promise endures. God doesn't make up a plan as he goes along. It's one of the most reassuring parts of our faith, that our God is sovereign and is completely sure of himself and his plan. That's something that we probably shouldn't say about ourselves, right? We're, we probably shouldn't be completely sure of ourselves and our plans. We should have confidence in the one who is, in Christ. His mind was made up before he made up the foundations of the world. There's never been a time when his mind wasn't settled, when his plan wasn't sure. And there's great comfort for us in that as we live our lives and encounter suffering and troubles. And there's great assurance for us in a salvation by faith alone because of God's unchanging nature. We don't have to wonder if God's going to decide tomorrow that it's not by faith we're saved, but it's by something different. But he has made up his mind. It is by faith alone. And when he made a promise to Abraham that he would provide salvation by faith through Christ, God wasn't going to change his mind. And Paul is reasoning with the Galatians. When men make covenants with each other, they keep them. A penalty of law, that's, it's, it's put into stone, and usually just because of the morality and dignity of men. People want to honor their word, usually. He's saying if men do this, usually, if men keep these covenants, if men who are evil do this, how much more should we expect that our good, perfect God should keep his covenants? That he'll keep his word. We can have absolute confidence in God's promises. In God's promise here. His promise endures. This is who God is. His word endures. His will endures. He is the enduring God. The psalmist in 119 says this. In Psalm 119 verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isn't that good? Forever. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The prophet Isaiah said that God's enduring nature is not like ours. He compared God's nature against our nature and the nature of grass and flowers. It's like grass and flowers, they wither and they go away, but not God. 
He's different than that. We're, and we're so used to death and change that sin wrought on creation that it's surprising and it's almost incomprehensible to us that our God might be unchanging. What else is like that? What else in the world does not wither and die? And yet, God doesn't, God's word doesn't. God's word stands through the ages. God's word stands through the ages. His promise stands through the ages. It holds through the test of time. It's what the prophet Balaam declared to the king of the Ammonites. You might be familiar with Balaam because he had a really exceptional donkey. But in Numbers 23, verse 19, this is what it says. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What a great encouragement to you, Christian. Has he said it and will he not do it? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Paul in Galatians is proclaiming this same God. That this God who didn't change in numbers with Balaam, who didn't change to the psalmist, who didn't change with Isaiah, he doesn't change now, nor will he ever change. And church, this is, this is your God too. You have a faithful God. You have a trustworthy God. He doesn't change with the seasons. He doesn't change with fresh political takes. He doesn't have a confusing clock that changes twice a year. For us, we can be filled with confidence as we follow our God. That our prayer and our reading and our evangelism, they're not in vain. Because God gives worth to those things in his word. There's no difference in pursuing God in the time of Paul and pursuing God today, that he is giving value to that, we can know for sure that it is worth our time. So we can go into the nations with confidence that God will work because he's made that promise. We can go to our neighbors without fear of persecution because we know he's promised us a greater reward than tempor temporary suffering. We can take chances as a church and as individuals and not fear failure as we're taking risks for Christ because we know God is going to grow his church and nothing can stop it. He's made those promises. For the Galatians, Paul was saying, look, look, these people who are coming in as false teachers, they love the way of their ancestors. But their ancestors believed in this God, a God of faith, an unchanging God. He made a promise to Abraham that he, would make, that he would make Abraham righteous by faith. Therefore, the law would not break God's promise. The law that came later could not break that promise. The law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians 3, 15 through 18. The inheritance promised to the offspring of Abraham must either come by the law or by faith. By the law or by the promise. It can't come through both. They're mutually exclusive. 
After all, the promise was made to one offspring. Or as some other translations, if you look in, in, if you look in your, word, your copy of the word, verse 16, it says, it does not say, and to offsprings. Uh, your copy might say, uh, your translation might say, uh, seed or seeds. It doesn't say to seeds, but it says to seed. And that child, that seed, the offspring of Abraham, he would receive the promise along with Abraham. And it would have been possible that many of the religious Jews who would have been going into Galatia and beforehand would have heard that, would have read that promise and thought, okay, Isaac is the offspring. And now we are the offspring. We are the inheritors of that promise. And Paul says in verse 16, nah, like, guys, no, the offspring is Jesus. That, that, that is about Jesus. The promise is fulfilled in Christ. When it says it's referring to one and to your offspring, it is Christ. The promise of salvation finds its completion in Christ. The promise is kept in Jesus. The promise is not kept in the keeping of the law. The promise is kept in the perfect keeper of the law. The promise is kept in the perfect seed of Abraham. So then, okay, all right. If the promise endured, if God doesn't change his mind, if it was all about Christ, then now we have a logical question. There's a question that comes next that we should ask if we're hearing and understanding all of this. If the promise is really the thing and it's not about the law, then look at verse 19. Here's a logical question. Why then the law? Like, why the law at all? Why did God give his people the law if it was always about faith in Jesus anyway? Do we just have a whole portion of our Bibles? Like, there's a big chunk in the Old Testament that's about the law. Like, is it just there for nothing? If it was always about faith, can we just toss it all out and just live in the, in the New Testament where, it, where that's fulfilled? Like, why at all? Why the law at all? Well, it's a good question. Paul acquiesces. <laughs> why then the law? It was added, this is verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And look, I'm just telling you, that can feel like a lot even before we get to verse 21. So we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to this verse 20, uh, verse 19. But look at verse 21. We're going to keep reading. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The purpose of the law was that it would be a guardian. And this means that the law preserves. The law preserves. The law was given as a gift to us. It was a mercy and a kindness of God that he would provide means for his people to honor him until the time came for Christ to come. You, you might ask, why, why didn't Jesus come sooner? Like, what's the, 
what's then again the purpose of the time? So, okay, if the law is to be a guardian, why did we need a, need a guardian? Like, why, why couldn't God have made the, Ab- the promise to Abraham that he was going to send a redeemer? And then instead of Isaac, why didn't God just send his son through Abraham immediately? I think that's a fair question. Well, here, here's two thoughts on that. The law provided evidence of our need. That through the history of the law, we realize our great need of a Savior. It's almost like easy come, easy go, right? Like if, if, if it costs nothing to have it, if, if you never realize your need for something, then you don't value that thing. For Jesus, with the law and the law imprisoning his people, it showed a clear need of a Savior. So in some ways, God was helping his people see his beauty and his goodness and how much of a savior and how much he loved his people by showing them their need for him. The law exposes our sinfulness. It's one of the great purposes of the law, that it exposes our sinfulness. That when we compare ourselves to both Mosaic law and then what we see is the law of love, when we, when we, when we put ourselves up against it, we're, we're never going to match it. We're never going to keep it all. The Jews could not keep the Mosaic law perfectly. It showed, it exposed their sinfulness. Because we have the law, we learn just how desperately we need a Savior. But here's a second point in that. Why didn't God send his son right away? Why didn't Jesus come right away? Because it's what God knew to be best. (laughs) Like, that's not a fancy answer, but we trust God. Like, God did it, and so... Part of our response to asking the question is, we trust God. Like, why, why didn't God immediately send him? Well, Romans 5, 6 says this, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't, it wasn't a thousand years too late. If only he'd have sent him earlier, then... No, God tells us that he sent Jesus at, right, at just the right time. Jesus in his word is saying, there's no question of this. I came right when you needed me. It's God, all-knowing, sovereign, provident, understanding, and acting at just the right time. So we might have some holes in our knowledge, humans, to not see everything about this, but we know now that we had a need for a Savior, and we trust our Savior that he came at just the right time. God knew his people needed a guardian until the day that salvation would come, so he provided the law. So Christians we don't look at the law and dismiss it or think of it as evil. In fact, we should love the law. We should be thankful for the law. It's a critical part of God's grace and love towards us. God saw his people in sin and he desired to imprison them under sin. That is to say, he wanted to put them in captivity under the law so as to keep them safe from sin. Even though he knew as he was trying to keep them safe, they would be exposing their own sin. It's like an old Western movie, I think, uh, when the bad guys are coming for an innocent man, and the sheriff is like, well, I can, I can protect you, but I've got to put you in our prison so I can keep you safe, right? Like, that's, it's not ideal. Even if you're innocent, you don't, you don't desire to be in a prison, but if that prison keeps you safest, you're, you'll go there. Well, the sheriff acts like a guardian to the innocent man, and the guardian puts him in captivity for his own good. The law is kind of like that. It's like the sheriff putting God's people in captivity for their own protection. Sin was the bad guy, I guess, constantly chasing here. 
It was constantly bringing death and punishment on them. So God said, look, here, here's a law, here's a guardian. Don't fall into the hands of sin. Stay holy. That was the goal of the law. If we can be just as plain with the law as we can be, it was that the people could be holy with their God. But this law can't save you. We'll never be good enough to be holy. But it did intend to preserve. It did preserve God's people. God never made the law the Savior. He only gave the law as a life preserver until the Savior came. God recognized how inaccurately humans see sin. This is important for us to think through, is how inaccurately we see sin. Sin was worthy of eternal separation from God. Not just the biggest sins, every sin. It's easy for us to just wipe over our sins and just excuse them and justify them away. But our sins were serious before God. So he helped us to see it accurately by giving us the law. He knew that people would fall completely into sin in such a way that it would warrant their complete destruction. And if you don't believe me, ask Noah's friends. God destroyed the whole world because of the sin of mankind. The law was a preserver until Jesus would come to set us free from the burden of sin. The Mosaic law is fascinating. To realize that on one hand, it helped us to be ready for Christ. But on the other hand, it locked us down under sin. It was both a help and a burden. The burden of sin was increased by the burden of law. We knew the sin existed, and so greater is the burden. The law was a burden, and it was a weight to bear. Go read the pages of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The laws were complex, and disobedience came with really severe consequences. You may have even heard people mock the severity of the consequences of the Mosaic law. But again, God was teaching, this is serious. Don't take sin lightly. And we who live under grace, under faith, within faith, now, after Christ, sin is no different before God. Your sin is still, still serious. But praise God, we have one who lifts the burden from us. Jesus came to take burdens from the burden. Have you ever seen a weightlifter lift too much? Like power cleaning or squatting, specifically? I mean, it's ugly. I don't like watching the videos when someone's got too much weight. But watch someone who's trying to squat too much weight or power clean too much weight, and they've got all this weight on the bars, and they lift it up off the rack, and it's like sometimes you can see them, like their whole bodies are shaking under the weight of the, of the bar. <laughs> they start to bend their knees, and it's over. The weight crushes them. There's some pretty bad injuries that can happen out of that, or hopefully the catch, the safety catches it, but I think thinking of someone under the weight of that bar is a good picture of the weight of sin and the law. It's crushing. It's ugly. It hurts. We need someone who's able to pick that up off of us. We can't do it on our own. No one is strong enough. You can't even do it with the help of your friends. No one is strong enough. Sin is too great. We all crumple beneath the weight of sin and the law. But Jesus is strong enough. Jesus is able. Jesus can ease that burden 
I know, I know that there are some of you that are crumpling beneath the weight of your sin and your modern law of traditions and moralism. That you're refusing to go to Christ because he thinks you, he needs, you think he needs you to be better before he'll accept you. I've got to get this right first. I've got to stop sleeping with my boyfriend first. I've got to stop cussing first. I've got to start treating people a little better first. That, that's just a new law you're imposing on yourself. Jesus calls you with faith, by faith, to be justified, not by your own goodness. We all, before Christ, create some type of standard or moral code that we have to meet in order to justify ourselves before Christ. And the call of the gospel, the call of Christ, is just come. So what is, what is keeping you from surrendering to Christ in faith? What law code are you inventing to replace faith? What's keeping you from trusting in him? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's pressure or expectations or moralism or pleasure. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The way to salvation is by belief. I promise when the spirit dwells in you, when you believe, God will not leave you where you are. The spirit dwelling in you changes your heart. It is transforming. You are a new creation. The spirit inside of you will deal with your sins with you. But come to him in faith. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. God desires your holiness. But he will not justify you because of your holiness. You can only be saved by his holiness, by his righteousness, given to you by the blood of Jesus through faith. Christian, that's, 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 that's a good thing for you today. <laughs> Like, if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, that's the best news you can hear. I can't encourage you enough to submit to that truth, to surrender to that, and by faith, trust Christ for your salvation. If you're a Christian, that news doesn't get old. Please don't start turning the blinders on when you hear the gospel. Please don't put your earmuffs on and start thinking something different because every day we need to be walked back through this good news that Jesus saved us not by our holiness or righteousness but because of his. So let's look at verse 19 and 20. The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. So here's what that's saying, just so you have some reference here. God gave the law through angels to Moses, and we have a few texts that give that idea that it was God was using angels to give his message to Moses for the law that we find in the Old Testament. The Judaizers thought this was a credit to their position. Like, how cool is this, that God was using angels to give his law to Moses, to this intermediary, Moses being the intermediary. And Paul's correcting them here. 
He's making it clear to these false teachers that actually the angels giving the message doesn't make the message better. Like the message of the gospel is actually better because God's word came straight to Abraham from God. So it's a direct message from God to Abraham. So it has more authority than even the law did. Moreover, the nature of a law covenant and a mediator is that it requires the work and diligence of two sides. Right? Like in a, in a, in a covenant, you can have someone break a side of the covenant. But in a promise, God is making the promise. He holds up his end of the deal, whether we do or not. Like he has made a promise to us. So Paul's saying, like, this is, the promise is better, guys. The promise is better. And God is one. His promise requires only his faithfulness and only his goodness. It only requires his work. He does the promising. He does the working. He does the mediating. It's like a, a one-stop shop for salvation. You know, angels are human mediators needed. But now that faith has come, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God designed this beautiful story of redemption, of a promise that would endure for generations, a law that would preserve the people in the meantime so that he could provide the Savior who would transform the dead creatures into living, beautiful children of God. So the promise endures, the law preserves, and the seed transforms. Jesus transforms. Jesus is that perfect seed of Abraham. He is the offspring. In him, the promise is kept and fulfilled. And it is by him and through him that people are transformed. Now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian we are transformed. We are now sons of God in Christ Jesus through faith. And this isn't just merely a shift. For us to no longer be under a guardian is not just merely a small thing. It is, it is a resurrection. The law preserved us and Christ gave us life. Christ doesn't just preserve you he makes you new. He gives you a heartbeat. He gives you a spiritual heartbeat where we were dead. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not just rolling over in our grave. We're getting out of the grave. That's amazing. Christ is amazing. What he does, Christian before Christ, you were also captive to the law. It might not have been the exact written Mosaic law that you knew, but really we can take it and say that the law is really anything we rely on for our righteousness. But it was the law of your heart that taught you what evil was. It was the feeling in, your, in you that you needed to get yourself right, that you needed to do better or be worthy. And when you turned to Christ, you didn't just start walking in a new direction. You were raised to life. 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Your God loves you so wonderfully and so thoroughly that he is able to draw you out of your spiritual death. It's not, it's not just him accomplishing a purpose. It's not just God with no emotion just doing something to say he did it. This is a God passionately drawing you to himself at great cost, in great suffering, because he loves you with a great joy. Your God loves you. He drew you out of your spiritual death and gave you spiritual life so that you could live with him and in him and through him forever. It says we are baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. The picture of baptism is dying and rising again. The picture of baptism is being covered by Christ. Think about when, when you're baptized, you go under the water, and when you come up, there is no dry part of you. It's actually one of my goals when I'm, <laughs> when I'm baptizing. I want to make sure there's no dry part of you, even your nose. It goes all under. You're completely wet. So that when you come up, it's a part of the picture. Every part of you is now seen in the righteousness of God. It's that symbol that you are dripping wet with God who you have, Christ who you have put on in salvation. Not in baptism, but the baptism is the symbol of that. That we are completely covered in Christ. Every part of us is seen in the righteousness of God. And we are united with Christ, and he is in us and through us, and our whole existence is wrapped up in him. So it changes who we are. Under the law, we identify, think about this, under the law, we identify as our best and most excellent traits. When people ask about you, you don't normally lead with the things that you're worst at. You, you, you usually go to the things that you're best at, your most excellent things, or at least we identify as our most obvious traits. Even specifically physical traits. The Judaizers, the, the false teachers in Galatia were wreaking havoc, and they were primarily, they had primarily been free Jewish men. One writer said that the Pharisees would have thanked God on a daily basis that they were not Gentiles, women, or slaves. But God never desired this type of division in his people. This type of arrogance and favoritism. They were claiming favoritism from God in that. That wasn't God's design. That wasn't his desire for his people. It's really hard, by the way, to be obsessed over Jesus and yourself at the same time. These false teachers were obsessed with themselves. Look at who I am. Look at my traits that make me great. It's really hard to do that. And at the same time, look how good God is too. <laughs> look how good God is. Look how wonderful he is. And I hope if you see anything in me, you see Christ in me. One of the 
best ways for the church to be unified is for us to stop obsessing over ourselves and begin obsessing over Jesus. One of the best ways for the church to be unified is for us to stop obsessing over ourselves and begin obsessing over Jesus. Because it's not your outward appearance or even your biological traits that garner favor for you with Christ. That's not what gives you value or standing before God. It is your belonging to Christ. It is your in Christness, if I can make up a phrase there. It's because the Spirit dwells inside of you. Because we are in Christ, then, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is, e- there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Paul comes at the arrogance of these false teachers? These things that you credit yourself with as what's making you valuable and worthwhile. He's saying, no. He's saying it's all about Christ. It's being one in Christ Jesus. So really, when you're looking at this, it's a message of unity. This, this in Galatians 3 is a message of unity. Unity with each other and unity in mission and unity in worth because it is unity in Christ. It isn't a message of annihilation. It's not saying that there's some goal of not having Jews or Greeks or slaves or free or male or female. And it's really not even primarily about equality. It's only a message of equality based out of a message of unity. It's the unity around and in Christ. Paul has here no purpose of doing away with ethnicity or doing away with gender or doing away with social hierarchies. His purpose is to say, your identity must be wrapped up in Christ. Who you are must be wrapped up in Christ. You have been transformed. You have been transformed. So while we live in a day and a culture that idolizes sex and claims there's no difference between men and women and that men can be women and vice versa, and while we live in a day where all of, all of our identities are elevated to say your identity is the most important thing about you, the Bible makes it clear that God has created us in his image. He actually makes it clear here, just because it's here, male and female. So Paul isn't painting a picture of a future without gender or infinite genders, which this verse specifically can be abused for that. That's not, his, that's not what's happening here. Read it in context. It's saying you need to be unified in Christ. He's not making the argument that, that sexuality doesn't exist. He's clarifying that the two genders exist in service to God. That sexuality exists in service to God. So masculinity of men should be wrapped up in Christ. Femininity of women should be wrapped up in Christ. Paul was recognizing that these distinctions exist. And he was purposefully using distinctions that were being used to oppress and harm and belittle others. And isn't that often how we use differences? Isn't it easy for us? 
You know, one that he doesn't use here, but I think is also a good one is generations. Like, don't we often, I mean, we have so many good generation names now. The boomers had a good one, but then it's like Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z. Got really boring. But isn't it easy for us to blame all the other generations for the problems? Like, don't we use our differences to divide? But God doesn't desire that our differences would divide. His gospel unites us no matter our differences. It should be true, church, that the gospel brings differences together that the world separates. There's no reason for these people and these people to be family, but the gospel gives it to us. The gospel gives it to us. We are unified, even in our differences, maybe even especially in our differences around the throne of Christ. That unity can only be possible through a bold transformation. It's the type of unity that can only happen when strangers become family. That's the message here. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Church, the gospel makes strangers family. We are adopted into the family of Christ together. It's one reason why we put a high priority on hospitality at Provision. I want, I want you, church, this is me talking to you. I want you to have each other in your homes because that's what a family does. I'd love to think that throughout the week, throughout the month, that Provision Church is getting together to have dinner together in other people's homes. Like, that you're inviting each other over. That you're meeting each other out for lunch. That, that you're doing what family does. Church, our unity is of the highest priority. It's of the highest importance. As a people who have been set free of captivity, it's easy for us to all run our own way. Right, we've, been let out of the, we've been let out of the prison, so let's all go do our own things. Let's all go chase our own prizes, but we have one prize. We're running in the same direction towards Christ as his sons and daughters. So we get to be unified together. It's tempting to claim independence not only from the law, but from each other as well. But Paul is grounding our freedom in the unity we have in the spirit. Yes, you are free, church, but you are free together. Our unity is found in the spirit that dwells inside of us. I love John 17. I'm going to read a couple verses there if you want to flip over. John 17, verses 22 and 23. It's just a few pages back. This is Jesus praying in John 17. He says this in verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me. So he's talking to the Father. Here's the Son talking to the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you think unity matters to God? Do you think our fellowship together, brothers and sisters, matters to God? Do you think our division bothers him? I think so. Church, our unity is so important together. I and them and you and me. It's because God dwells inside of us that we can be unified with him and that we can be unified with each other. This is why there's unity in missions, that we should live sent, that we should be on mission together. It's why we should be sending ourselves because we have unity with God and with each other. If Jesus's purpose was to seek and to save the lost, should that not also be our purpose? If we have unity with him, if he is in us, we don't just unify around being in the same building at the same time, on the same day. We don't just unify around social class or ethnicity or favorite sports teams. We unify around the mission of our Savior. That's primary. We unify around the mission of our Savior. I believe church planting gives us one of the coolest pictures of unity around the mission of Christ. When we send out from among ourselves, we are unified even when we are far away. Isn't it a neat concept to think about that someday we may send ourselves with the same doctrine, the same philosophy, the same culture into a new place? And that provision church will be unified with another body of believers in just a really intimate way. Isn't that a beautiful picture of that unity, both near and far? Because really, our unity shouldn't just be in one building, in one place. Our unity should be with believers all across the world. And God gives us the uniqueness of being a part of our local body as well. When we plant churches, it's a picture of a kingdom without borders. That's really why we love having generations investing into each other. A lot of our life groups are intergenerational. There's, there's all types of ages and life stages in our life groups. And if church planting is a picture of kingdom, a kingdom without borders, I think intergenerational discipleship and ministry is a picture of a kingdom without age restrictions. It's unity. We are one, no matter our age or our gender or our economic class or our ethnicity or our schooling. We are unified in Christ. And in Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. We have a hope that our unity on earth with Christ and with fellow believers will be rewarded and increased when we receive our inheritance in heaven. So today, will you have unity with us? That's the invitation I'd like to offer to you. Would you have unity with us? When I preach, I, I, it's just, I'm preaching to Christians, to fellow believers. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, like usually I talk to you specifically. If you're here and you're not a Christian, because I'm, I'm preaching to brothers and sisters. And so right now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm talking to you specifically. 
will you have unity with us? Will you have unity with Christ? Will you turn from your sins? Will you say, no, I want Jesus more than anything and receive salvation and a new family in Christ? By faith alone. I hope that today you might hold on to that ancient, enduring promise of salvation by faith alone and not by works. Christians, back to you guys. <laughs> Will you pray like crazy for unity? Will you work like crazy for unity? I mean, are you willing to be hospitable? Are you willing to reach out to people who are in this room right now, but you don't know their names yet? And you don't know what they do for a living. Really, the question is, do you have any community with some brothers and sisters in here? That's fine. I mean, you can only have so many friends. That's just like sociology. Like, it just happens. But can you commit to loving each other well? Look, I, I just want to be an encourager here and say that I love getting to preach this sermon to a congregation who I think is doing this pretty well. Like, I'm not up here like, get it right, guys. Come on, change, change. I love the way that you guys pursue each other. And I want to keep encouraging you in that. I think there's always room that there's always room to improve. <laughs> you can always do better. I think we can always keep pursuing Christ better as we pursue each other as well. Church, will you pray like crazy for unity? Will you pray like crazy for the harvest? Let's be diligent. Let's get to work for this beautiful gospel that saved us from the weight of our sin and brought us into the freedom of Christ. That no longer are we under a guardian but now we are free in Christ. If you want to talk through salvation and coming to Christ and living in that freedom and losing the burden of your sin and the law, I would love to talk with you. I want to be in the back. We're going to keep worshiping together. We're going to sing now to our King, to our, to our God who loves us. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for letting us study your word. Thank you for giving us your word so that we can know you and fellowship with you. Thank you for the promise that your word doesn't return void, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that your word cuts us deep. God, I pray that we would receive your word today in a way that does cut us deep, that doesn't leave us the same. But God, I know that you use your word to transform us, that you use your word to draw us closer to you. God, I pray that inside of us your spirit would be working not leaving us the same. God, I thank you so much that you gave us salvation, not by our works, but by your work. That your promise is good even when I'm not. God, thank you for your faithfulness to me and to this congregation, to our church. God, I pray for those who are far from you, who are rejecting you in their hearts. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts. God, I, I pray that you would bring many to salvation in you. Even in this room today, even watching online today, God, I pray that you stir in the hearts of those who have previously rejected you. God, bring them into repentance. We thank you so much that you've loved us, that you continue to love us, that even now you're preparing a place for us Oh God, you are so good. We pray this in your name. Amen.